All right. How's everybody doing today? Yeah? Good? That's good. You can open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. We're going to be continuing on in the book of Judges, second study in the life of Samson. Before we get going, let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us together, um, this opportunity to be with our loved ones, our brothers and sisters. I pray that it would be a blessing for us corporately, but that you would have something for each one of us personally. Lord, that you would speak to our heart directly. Meet us where we're at. And I pray, Lord, as we come before you honestly, that you would bless us tremendously. Lord, glow, grow us for your own glory. And I ask this in your name. Amen. 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 Okay, so last week we began Samson, the man that uh, would begin to deliver the people of God, uh, the children of Israel, from the Philistines. Uh, this week, he's going to get a little sidetracked with delivering the people of God, and he's going to go ahead and marry a Philistine. So he's kind of going in a different direction rather than, uh, you know, the direction for which he was born. Um, Samson was this man who was called to take a Nazarite vow for the entirety of his life. Uh, we talked at great length last week about the Nazarite vow, what that is all about. Uh, so here it is. Uh, pop quiz. Hot shot. Do any of you know what the three things are that a Nazarite cannot do? Can't drink wine. Can't drink wine. Okay, another person. Another person. Yeah, you got to share it. I don't want you to be the only person that learns here. All right? Okay. Can't cut their hair. All right. A third in the back. They can't touch anything unclean. That's, that's just a general Jewish thing. <laughs> Specifically for the Nazarites. Yes, they weren't supposed to drink wine, anything with grapes. Uh, they couldn't cut their hair, which is correct. And they couldn't touch anything unclean. Specifically, the thing that is unclean, there's nothing more unclean in the mind of a Jewish person than what? A dead body. Uh, and that's, that's the very thing that Samson is going to do. This week, he's going to uh, he's going to fuss around with a dead carcass. So we'll we'll do that this week. We'll talk about that this week. That's going to be the main focus of our study this week. I had difficulty with this passage. I'll just I'll just tell you at the beginning. Uh, maybe it'll make things a little bit easier for us as we go through it. Chapter fourteen and fifteen are completely connected. They really tell one story of Samson meeting this woman, falling in love with this woman, and then going through the whole process of marrying her, everything that happens as they're going through the marriage festivals, and then the, you know, the post-wedding rampage that he goes on, killing a bunch of people with the jawbone of a donkey. Um, and and it's, it, it was difficult for me because it's quite a lengthy story. I wanted to divide it in two parts. The only subdivision that I can make is the first nine verses. So that's going to be what we talk about this week. We're going to do nine verses. Then next week, uh, we're going to do the rest of chapter 14, and chapter 15. So that to say, this week might be a bit short of a study. We're only going to do these nine verses. We're going to be focusing on Samson, the development of his character, 
and sin. Uh, and I told, uh, who was I talking to? Was this Corinne? So I was like, yeah, we're going to be talking about sin tonight. And she was like, yay. I think that's how, that's how everyone feels when you bring up that. So we're going to be talking about sin. Sin, what, not sin. Sin, what is sin? What is the lure of sin? Uh, there's great lessons for us here in these first nine verses. So we'll begin in verse one. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Commentators love this verse. They all say the same thing, that this is truly when Samson began to go down, and not down uh, necessarily only geographically. This is when Samson began to go down morally. You know, so, this, so they all love to, to point out the, this wonderful little play on words. This is, this is it. This is when he begins to go down. And so he went up and told his fathers, or told his father, he didn't have more than one, and mother, saying, I've seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. And remember, this is during the times of arranged marriages, so Samson couldn't necessarily go down there himself and say, hey, I like you, let's go run off like a couple of crazy kids and, and get hitched. He had to go through his parents, and his parents had to talk to her parents there's a whole process in verse 3. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among my people that you must uh, go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. And we're going to talk about what that specifically means later. But Samson sees this woman. It's, it's love at first sight. right? And he sees her and he's like, Oh! This is, this is it. This is the one. And just to satisfy my own curiosity, maybe I'll, I'll ask the question. How many of you believe in love at first sight? Not a soul in the room. Wow. No, no hopeless romantics right there in the back. You believe in love at first sight. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so maybe she doesn't believe in love at first sight. But... <laughs> Yeah, you see, I mean, and we, we love those stories. We, you know, as someone, they see each other and they lock eyes across a crowded room and, and it's just love at first sight. And that's the way that it is. And, and actually, you know, I don't know if you, if you're familiar with the story, but there is a great epic love story. Uh, and it's the first time that I met Corinne. And I was sitting in class and it was, it was during lunch and, uh, and, and I was kind of a, a hermit during this period of my life, so I would retreat to a classroom, and I sat in the classroom reading my Bible, and, uh, and I was reading it there during lunch, and she came in, she had nachos in her hand, <laughs> and, and she approached me, and Aaron's probably familiar with the story, I'm sure you've heard it before, and, uh, and, and so you didn't miss much, and so <laughs> and she came at me, and she had the nachos, and she put it out, and she offered me a nacho, and I knew right there, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it was, it, I was... I was completely confident. I knew in my heart of hearts the Spirit spoke to me and said, nachos. That's the sign. That's how, that's how a guy knows. You know, and, and it was like Adam when he first saw Eve. And Adam, when he saw Eve, he said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. In Hebrew, it's etzem etzem, besar besar. It's the inscription on my wedding ring. Etzem etzem, besar besar. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's, it, it, it means the, the exact counterpart in another, the piece that was taken out of Adam to make Eve. 
And now it's returned to Adam. He didn't need to look around for another. He, he wasn't going to go wandering around in the jungle and say, well, that gorilla might be the one. How do I know? I can't be sure. No, there she was. And he said, she's the one, my exact counterpart, the extension of my own flesh. It was love at first sight. He recognized something in Eve that she was created distinctly for his completion. She was part of me. She was taken from me, and now God is bringing that part back to me. She's the one. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Now here's the question. Did Samson find his Eve in this woman? And how do you know? You say no. Why? How do you know? Was she bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh? No, but Delilah's coming. And this woman, this woman is, is, is the precursor to Delilah. And he falls into the same trap with this woman that he fell into Delilah. So you can learn about the, the predictable patterns of Samson, Samson through this relationship with this woman. This woman couldn't be his counterpart. She couldn't be an extension of his own flesh. She was of a different flesh. She was of a different people. She wasn't of the people of God. She wasn't a member of the family of God. Deuteronomy 3, or, or chapter 7, verse 3, some really practical advice that God gives his people. And this is good advice for parents to write down. All right? Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 and 4. God's giving his people advice about marriage. You know, if, the, if, if they, being the people of God, should come home with someone that is not of the people of God, he says, do not intermarry with them. And that's pretty straightforward. So they're not of the people of God. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons. Do not take their daughters for your sons. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And how many times have you seen it, parents, with your children? I've seen it with, with kids in the youth group. And, and they, they, they come home or maybe they come into the room and then they're filled with, with, uh, you know, enthusiasm. They're just bounding with joy. And they're like, I found her. And it's like, who? I found the one. I found this woman. I found that person. You're like, well, who is she? What is she? What is she like? Is she a Christian? You know, and they're like, I don't know. But man, she is beautiful. And it's all about what the person looks like visually. God says what's more important than what, what the person looks like visually, it's what's essential to them or internally. What's at the core of them personally? What's beneath the surface of them? This Philistine might have been very good looking. But God's already told him, this person is going to turn you away to serve their own gods. And you found love in a place where I've already told you, you shouldn't be looking for love in the first place. This is a place that should be disqualified from the playing field. You're my child. Your bone of my bone, your flesh of my flesh. You have to find someone within this family. And Samson would say in verse 3, she's right for me. She pleases me. Right, depending on what translation you have. Now, if you read it in the Hebrew, it's literally going to say she is right in my eyes. She is right in my eyes. I like what I see. How dangerous it could be for a Christian to have that is their one qualification. And say, there's never going to be another girl like this. You know, emotional teenagers can be hormonally unbalanced, you know, completely illogical, irrational. 
And the parents, yet Samson's coming up to him saying, I'm never going to feel about another woman the way I feel about this woman. And what would you do if you were the parents of Samson? And you'll see that the parents of Samson, they give in to him. And they go get her for him. You might say, well, I wouldn't do that for my boy. And Samson, I'm going to throw him in his room. I'm going to lock him up in there. And don't come out until you're ready to marry a decent woman. They don't do that. They don't lock him in his room. They don't throw away the key. Come out when you're 20, when your brain's working right. You know, they just they say you're a man now. And you've got to be accountable for your own actions now. This is the path that you're choosing to walk. And it's interesting that while Samson is making these terrible decisions, God is still going to find a way to use him. And it's the most surprising thing to me to read this next verse. Look at verse 4. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. verse always surprises me. And God knew uh, Samson's sinful propensity. He knew that he had this weakness for pretty ladies. And God isn't justifying this. God isn't saying, well, it's a good thing that you go do this. No, God is saying good things are going to come out of this, but not for you, Samson. You're falling into sin. Good things are going to come out of this for Israel. It's sad. Good things don't necessarily come out of it for Samson, but good things never come out of, of sinful decisions. You know, Israel's going to be blessed by this. They're going to cast off the, the yoke of the Philistines in their own country. Samson, he's going to be harassed for this. He's going to be emotionally hurt as a result of this decision. Yet God allows it. Because God can bring good from it. Let's take a look at the next couple of verses. Verse 5. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother, came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him. The spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he tore the lion apart, as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, that he did not tell his father and mother what he had done. I find it interesting that he didn't tell anyone what he did. Um, and it's usually a sign that, that you know that you've done something wrong when you don't tell anyone about it. You know, Samson was a Nazarite, and one of the stipulations of, of maintaining your Nazarite vow was that you, you weren't allowed to touch a dead body. And so many commentators said, well, or, or say that, that he's done something wrong here. You know, because he, he killed the lion with his bare hands. You'll see later in the stories that he usually uses a weapon, you know, so that he's not touching death. But with this, the lion comes at him, he grabs the lion with his bare hands, he tears the lion apart. So some commentators maintain that when he did this, he sinned because he was touching a dead lion. Other commentators say, well, he tore it and he probably threw it down. So he wasn't touching the dead lion. There might have still been life in the lion. The same way, and maybe you've heard the story after, uh, this is going to get really dark and morbid for a second. I thought about this before I wrote it, but nonetheless, I'm going to do it. Maybe you've heard after, well, maybe during even the French Revolution, uh, when the guillotine was in use for capital punishment, and people would have their heads severed by the guillotine, you could have uh, maybe seven seconds of life 
where you could see the head still blinking after it's severed from the body. So some commentators say, well, there still might have been life in the lion. After he tore it in half, Beth is looking disgusted, so I'm going to move on. This is really morbid, Michael. I'm sorry. It's in the notes. i got to read it. What do you want? They're divinely inspired. You know, and so he tore, he tore the lion, and maybe there was still life in the lion. Maybe the lion was still looking down and saying, those are my legs. What are they doing over there? You know, but so, you know, there's this disagreement today. And you got to imagine if there's a disagreement over whether or not this is sin today, there's probably much more heated disagreement about how far a Nazarite could go in pushing the boundaries in Samson's day. I mean, people have been splitting the hairs over religious issues like this uh, since the beginning of time. Well, did he break his vow or did he not break his vow? Maybe, you know, 3,000 years ago, Jews would sit around and stroke their beard and say, well, you know, maybe there was life in the animal. Well, it was self-defense. And they would say, well, what could he do? You know, and they would go back and forth. And here's Samuel, Samuel and he's, er, yeah, Samson. Have I said Samuel a couple of times so far? This is the first time? Thank you. you keep track. And here's Samson. I, when, I, when I was working on this, I kept on typing Solomon. And I'm like, God, they're just all running together for me. But uh, completely different lives. Solomon never tore a lion apart. I mean, but uh, here you have Samson, and he's just torn a lion apart. And the Hebrew word is shashan. It means to tear to shreds, to pull apart. This is what he did with his bare hands to a, a lion. And, and the text says, it, it, well, well, how did he do it? He did it like you would tear a young goat. And I don't know about you, and maybe depending on how long you've been a Christian. If you read that, that's got to sound like the most bizarre verse in all the Bible. And it's like, well, how do you tear a lion apart? Well, the same way you would tear a young goat apart. Well, how do you tear a young goat apart? I mean, that just gives me more questions. That doesn't give me any answers. How do you, t- I just, I don't understand it. But this is what he did. He tore a lion apart. And he didn't tell anybody about it. He didn't tell anybody about it. And it seems like he wasn't sure if it was right or if it was wrong, if he had broken his vow or if he still maintained his vow. So he decides to hide it. And this is what Christians do so often, I think, when they're unsure about things, when they hear debate about things. And, and this is, this is the sad thing about Samson because this is where he, he begins to divide his life. He begins to divide his life between his public life and his private life. The life that he allows other people to see and be aware of and the life that he guards and keeps to himself. And maybe there's there's this insecurity in him where he's unsure about how people are going to react to him if they know this about him. So he decides that he's just not going to tell them about it. You know, when I was when I was about sixteen, it was it was probably before I was even a Christian. I started going up to uh, the the Baptist church up on the hill above my house, and I did I had, I had a terrible mouth back then. You know, just. Uh, I was, uh, it was all I knew, right? It was, uh, I had my father's uh, colorful vocabulary. So I was up there and I was talking to everyone. I was telling this story and it was just filled with profanity. And one of the youth leaders uh, pulled me aside and um, he said, hey, you know, I know that you're, you're new here, but we'd really appreciate it if you didn't talk like that while you're here. And very quickly, the conclusion that I came to is that I needed to be one person when I'm here and I could be a different person. I could be my, my true person when I'm out there. And I think that we do this a lot. We divide our lives a lot like this for the same reason maybe that Samson did it, for fear of judgment. And, and we do this with things that we know are sin. But I think a lot of times we do this with things that 
aren't even sin. We're just unsure about what people would say if they knew this about us. So we make this division in our lives. This is my private life. This is my public life. This is my uh, Saturday night life. And this is my Sunday morning life. And when I was working on this, I, I really be, began to ask myself the question of, of what would the church look like if we all brought the Saturday night version of ourselves in on a Sunday morning? And I think it's really a question worth thinking about. And because so many of us, we might think, well, I don't have anything that's substantial that I'm hiding or keeping back. I mean, there's, there's nothing like where I'm going to be a completely different person, you, you know, and on Saturday night than I am on Sunday morning. But it's these small, seemingly insignificant changes that we make when we walk into church. You know, and I, I think we'd be surprised to be in that church, the Saturday night version of the church. Maybe you'd see someone walk in with a cigarette in their mouth and you'd be like, whew. Smoking in the house of God? Adios mio. And we begin thumbing through our Bible. I know there's a verse in here somewhere. God, thou shalt not smoke. It's in here in Leviticus. You have all the laws. You know, and it's like we begin doing that. Maybe someone will walk in with a beer in their hand. And you'd be like, Whoosh. I mean, they're, they're 45, but, uh, but there's got to be something about Christians. And you're never, I mean, Jesus drank, but there's a loophole there, I'm sure, for our time in our place, it's wrong. It's sin. You're evil. And, uh, and maybe a girl to walk in in a miniskirt on her phone, texting vigorously, spewing profanity, and you'd be like, well, okay, well now, there's no more ambiguity. I'm sure about this one. There's something wrong with that. And here's the verse, and you know, let's go talk to her. Let's go confront her. And let's go say something. And, and, but I'll say something that might shock a less savvy crowd of Christians. I'll say that, that in that church, the Saturday night version of the church, Jesus is not only present, but he's probably very pleased. You know, if there's one place where people should be honest, it should be the church. If there's one place uh, that, that where we shouldn't be hiding who we are, it's the church. You know, when when Adam first sinned in the garden and when he when he ate that, you know, that forbidden fruit, uh, what was the first thing that he did? The first thing that he did is he started gathering leaves to hide who he was. Because he realized that he was naked. Before that, he was just cruising around the garden naked, and he didn't think anything of it. But now his eyes are open, he sees himself, and he's like, something's wrong. I've got to hide it. So he starts gathering leaves to hide who he is, and God shows up, and what does God say? And God says, who? Well, yeah, he says, where are you? And then when he sees him, he says, who told you? That this is something that you needed to hide from me. You know, one of my one of my uh, friends got in my car uh, the other day. I was giving him a, a ride. We're actually going out to eat at La Paloma. Have you been to La Paloma? Delicious food. They have a seafood chimichanga there, by the way. It's to die for. He got in my car, and um, in my center console, he saw my uh, my tobacco pipe. You know, it's the same kind of pipe that like Sherlock Holmes would smoke. And you're like, wow, how very obscure of a thing to have in your car, but I enjoy it. You know, and some of you are going to realize, didn't Charles Spurgeon smoke a tobacco pipe? Is that why you smoke it, Michael? Because you like Charles Spurgeon so much? You're exactly right. I'm not going to lie. I, <laughs> it's, uh, but it makes me it makes me feel like I'm from a simpler time, right? A more dignified time. When a man's a man, he eats his steak raw, and he smokes his pipe afterwards, because that's, that's what you're supposed to do. And uh, he saw that. He saw that in my car. And there was this split second 
a panic in my mind. Where I thought, what is he going to think about me? What's, what's he, what's he going to say? What do I say back to him? I don't think that there's anything wrong with what I just did. The same way I'm sure Samson felt like there wasn't anything wrong with what he just did. But if I go to hide it, there's something wrong with that. I mean, I was talking to, uh, I was talking to Corinne earlier today and I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the tobacco pipe. And she was like, you, you can't, you can't do that. You can't tell those people that you do that. What, what, what do they say about you? What do they think about you? You know, that's, and, and besides, they don't need that information. That's your private life. But if there's a distinction there like that, then there's a problem with that. Isn't there? I mean, the, the, there shouldn't be this uh, compartmentalized versions of my life and who I am uh, during some times, and it's completely different than who I am at other times. If my mind is going in that direction, then I'm already gathering up fig leaves to hide who I am. And God's not pleased with that. He's looking at me and saying, why are you doing that? You know, it, how is it that prostitutes and tax collectors... These people that were like the dregs of the society 2,000 years ago, how is it that these people felt so comfortable around Jesus? Why were they drawn to him? And it's because here was a man, and maybe the first man, that wasn't coming up to them and condemning them. He was just loving them, and they could be honest with him. Not to say that they're proud about sin, they're coming up to him and saying, hey, this is just who I am and I'm not going to change or whatever it might be. But they could be honest with him. They could be transparent before him. They didn't need to hide anything in the face of him. You know, a verse that's very familiar to all of us, it's, it's Psalm 51, verse 6. And it's the Psalm of David. And, and it's one of those Psalms of David that comes with a little introduction to tell you, tells you uh, what motivated him to write this psalm. And it's after he, he committed, you know, the greatest sin of his life with Bathsheba and, and then uh, Uriah. And you know the story. And he kept it to himself. After he sinned, he hid this sin. He didn't tell anyone about it. He just covered it. And finally, when he was confronted, he brought it all out in the open. And he found that, that God didn't condemn him for it the way that we often think God is going to come at us when we come before him and make a confession to him, the way that Christians often come at us when we have things that are imperfect in us. God was loving to him and forgave him, and he wrote in verse 6, he said, you desire honesty from the womb. So he said, you desire honesty from the womb. This is all you wanted all along. All you wanted was honesty. All you wanted was transparency. You didn't want me to compartmentalize my life where I had to be one person when I'm at church or before you. I had to pretend to be something different than what I am. I had to put on a mask and hide who I am. He says, no, you just wanted me to come before you honestly, in humility, and say, this is what you get when you get me. And I think we can all agree, right? Or maybe this should be the time when we agree to not be like how Christians can so often be. 
and I'll use myself as the example, right? Because you would see so many people, and 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 I I see so many say it to my dad because my dad smokes three packs a day, and I got so used to my dad because of my grandma going up to church, uh, people seeing him and critical eyes being cast upon him by Christians that would look at him and say, well, you know what, I'll tell you another place where you're going to be smoking. And it's in hell where you're burning. And, and it's ridiculous. And it's silly. This isn't the place where we should be condemning. And, and why is it maybe that, that, that the equivalent of prostitutes and tax collectors aren't drawn to the church in our day, the way that they were drawn to Jesus in his day? Maybe it's because of that very mentality that Samson was running from, he was hiding from. For fear of judgment, he concealed the truth of his actions. Maybe this should just be a, a place where a group of people, uh, and, and we all agree that we're a mess of people, and get together and we're just honest with each other. And we just all admit that we need Jesus today just as much as I needed him on the first day that I met him. And I'm not hiding. I'm not dividing my life. I'm being consistent in my life. I'll tell you what happens when, when we divide our lives, when we separate our lives. This life that we keep in secret, the life that we do these things that are pseudo-sin, they're going to turn, and, and that's going to turn into the part of our life where we cultivate sin now. Because we think that we can we have this life that nobody else knows about. And this is the very area where he's hiding this pseudo-sin, this sin of ambiguity, that he's going to fall in our study tonight uh, immensely. Let's continue in verse 7. Then he went down and talked with the woman. So here he is. He has his conversation, first conversation. And he said, uh, and she pleased Samson well. So he finally talks to her. And he's pleased by her. What could they possibly have in common? You know, he's supposed to be a child of light. She's a child of darkness. And he's like, yeah, good talk. We have a lot in common. Love the same music. You know, both love red licorice, hate black licorice. I hate black licorice. Does that mean you're going to marry me? No, there's plenty of people that you have things in common with. It doesn't mean that you marry them. He had a good conversation with this woman, and he's like, well, she's the one. I knew it. Red licorice. That's, that's all I needed to know. You know, and he moves, and, and he's going to marry her. But he had this unchecked heart that led him to look for love in the wrong places with the wrong people. We continue the last two verses of the night. Verse 8 and verse 9. After some time, when he returned uh, to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went alone eating, or went along eating, sorry. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Still living this secret life. Again, he's not telling them about it. And there's no debating anymore whether or not this is sin. This is definitely a violation of his Nazarite vow. 
a blatant violation. He's not supposed to be around death. He not only is around death, he touches death. And he not only touches death, but he eats death. And what a wonderful picture of sin. Tonight's all been all about sin. It's been a great night. I sat around, made each other uncomfortable, talked about sin. But but this is this is what it looks like. This is, you know, and he passes by and he's like, hey, I remember I killed something over there. You know, and uh, had just had a good talk with the, the woman I'm going to marry. Got so much in common, red licorice. I think I'm going to go check out that dead animal. And so he starts walking over there. And this is, this is you know, I'm going to be honest. This is something the guys do. You know, they're like, hey, dead animal. I'm going to go check it out. And, uh, you know, I remember just a couple of weeks ago, right, I posted that picture on Facebook of all the ants that I killed. It's a guy thing. I don't get it. It's We do it, though. And there were the hundreds of them. They were on the ground. I sprayed them with bleach. And then I sat back and stared at them and drank tea. I was like, huh, victory. That's right. You're dead because of me. But I'm not a Nazarite. You know, it's all right for me to be around him. Samson, he's a Nazarite. He shouldn't be around death. Not only goes around death, he touches death. This decomposing, disgusting carcass of a lion. He goes to visit his victim, and he notices something about it. Inside the dead, decomposing body, there's this swarm of bees, and there's honey. And boy, that honey looks good. I mean, who could say no to honey? It's like, it's like liquid gold. It's delicious. Put it on toast. Fantastic. And, and he goes, he sees the honey. He's like, ah, I gotta do it. I gotta try it. He reaches in there. He grabs it. And it's something sweet. And it's something dead. And every bite, that's what he gets. And it becomes, for me, just one of, one of the most powerful pictures of sin and what sin is in, in, in all the Bible, maybe. Because sin has this twofold nature. So the, the twofold nature of sin is that it's something sweet and it's something dead. There's something sweet in sin. That's what attracts you to it. Then mingled together with the sweetness of the honey in this decomposing body. You're not just getting the honey. You're getting the death that's attached to the body, the decay from the body. Why do we sin? Because sin can be sweet. I mean, even the Bible admits that, doesn't it? Hebrews eleven twenty five. You know, Hebrews eleven twenty five talking about Moses. It says he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to uh, enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Sin is pleasurable. Right? And that's why we do it. If it wasn't, none of us would struggle with it. You know, you, you never hang out with a friend. He's like, I really need prayer. I'm really struggling with sin. It's like, what's your sin? I keep on hitting myself in the head with a hammer. It's like, why are you doing that? That sounds terrible. He's like, yeah, but it's really tempting. Every single time I go walk by hammers, I'm like, oh, I could be hitting myself in the head with that right now. It feels so good. No, that's ridiculous. Why would anybody struggle with something like that? We struggle with sin. And, and you hate to talk about it in the church. We had a guest speaker one time. He came to our church, and he was, he was talking about this very thing, and he said something that I'll never forget. He was sharing his testimony. He used this verse, and he said, I've never had a bad time when I smoked pot. I thought that was the worst thing that you could possibly say to a group of high schoolers. <laughs> but for him, it was true. It's like sin is pleasurable. That's why people do it. But it's pleasurable only for a short time. Then death sets in. There's decay in it, mingled with the sweetness of it. When I was uh, when I was a kid, my brother was always trying to kill me. 
And um, one time, one time uh, we were having breakfast, and my mom was doing laundry, and she left the laundry detergent on the on the on the breakfast table there. And my brother took the detergent. This is probably another story that Erin's familiar with. She's she's heard them all. She's my legacy. She carries all my memories. She's like my external hard drive. Um, you know. <laughs> But my, my brother, he picked up the laundry detergent and he poured it into my orange juice. And and I'm, I'm assuming that you gasped because you know that it's highly toxic to drink laundry detergent. All kinds of things in there that'll that you know should kill you, right? And uh, and he was like, "Here you go. I, I made this for you. It's special." And I was like, "Okay, sweet." You know, I was like, I was a kid. I was like 23. You know, I'm just kidding. No, I was, I was, you know, I was like four or something. I don't know how old I was. My mom tells me the story. I don't remember it. I don't remember anything before sixth grade. Maybe it has something to do with laundry detergent. But, but he poured it in my orange juice, and he's like, "Here, I made this for you," and I drank it. And and it was sweet. It was wonderful. It was delightful. And I gave it such a raving review that my brother, despite the fact that he knew that he poisoned it. Drank it also. I was like, man, this is the best thing ever. You gotta try this. And he was like, well, this is gonna probably kill me. But, I don't wanna be missing out on the most delicious beverage on earth. So he grabbed it and he drank it as well. And we're sitting there, both of us, and we're drinking our orange juice and laundry detergent. My mom walks in. And, and she's like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, we made this great drink. It's orange juice and laundry detergent. It's the simplest thing in the world. We can all enjoy it together. And she freaked out. She threw us in the car, took us to the hospital, and when we got there, they gave us Epicac, you know, the, to, to, you know, expel the evils from our body, to make us violently vomit up the poison that was in us. And, and you think of the story and you go, oh, what a mean mom. What a, what a, she ruined your fun. No, right? I mean, absolutely no. What a good mom. She saved us from the consequences of our ignorance. The drink that, that we were consuming at the moment was sweet, but it was deadly. There was poison in it. You know, and, that, and that's, that, that's, that's what sin is. It's, it's not just a sweet treat. Otherwise, God wouldn't tell us to stay away from it. He's not a heavenly killjoy in saying, I don't want you to do that, and I'll tell you why, because it's fun. Okay? You take that smile off your face right now, you're a child of God. You know, it's like, no, that's not, that's not what God's all about. It's because he's like the mom that can see beyond the sweet treat. And in his own, you know, heavenly wisdom and divine knowledge, he knows that there's death in the treat. That it's only going to satisfy you for a season, and then it's going to start taking life away from you not enhancing the life that he has given you. In John 10.10, Jesus talks about the devil and what the devil does to us through sin. And he compares it with what he can do through salvation. And John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. It says, listen, you can go down that road, and it might be sweet for a bit. But eventually, you're going to realize that you're getting ripped off and slowly killed. You know, when Adam 
was in the garden. God told him, when you eat of that, or if you eat of that, you will surely die. And you read that, and the chapters that come after that, and you realize Adam lived over 900 years after he ate it. He didn't, it wasn't like, boom, he ate it, and then he was dead. But he lived over 900 years simply to prove the point of what God had told him. He lived the rest of his life completely ripped off from the type of life that he was supposed to have in God, the type of life that he was supposed to have connected to God. And this is why we're warned not to sin. It's still the same warning. You'll eat of that. And when you bite into that, it might be sweet, but it's going to rip you off of the full life that he has for us, the complete life that he's desiring to impart to us. This life that, that isn't sweet sometimes, but mingled with death. No, it's this life where he would say, I've already come and I've already taken the death upon myself. And that's what he's done for us in the cross. He's already taken the death out of it. So all we're left with is just the sweetness of this life that he wants to impart to us. Saying this is the life that you can have, and it's a wonderful life. And I pray that you have it. And I pray that you know it. It's this very life that Samson is squandering. And uh, next week, we're going to have to continue, because we just don't have time to do all the way through chapter 15. But we'll continue the story and see uh, the ongoing life of Samson, a life marked by by sin. Let's go ahead and end with a word of prayer, and Sam's going to come on up here and end us on a more positive note. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that, that Lord, you are that, that good parent that rushes in to take away a poisonous drink from an ignorant child. I pray for all of us, because we all have those areas that we're still hiding out in, that we're still keeping. And I pray, Lord, that we would be like those tax collectors that we read about that would just come before you, and they would be completely honest with you. They wouldn't leave anything in the shadows concealed from you as if we could possibly keep anything in the shadows. But Lord, when we cultivate those shadows, sin grows in those shadows and it becomes a nasty thing that can have devastating consequences. I pray, Lord, that as we come before you in humility and as we lay everything before you honestly, Lord, that you would purify us completely and deal with us consistently. And Lord, let us be a group of people that's not going to jump to judge others, but rather just look at them the way you would look at them and just love them. Say, I see where you're at. I'm a mess just like you. I thank you, Lord, that you're so good to us. You're so gracious to us. Lord, you are 
the only one that imparts life to us. You don't take it away from us. You've already taken the death out of it for us so that it can't have any victory over us. I praise you. I thank you, Lord. I ask that, that if there's anyone here who doesn't have that life in you, that life that can only come from you, that today they would draw close to you, be honest with you, and be redeemed by you. And I praise you, Lord, for it. You're so faithful to do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.